Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 242 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Curtis McHale. Hello. And Jonathan Stark. Hello there. And Philip Morgan. Howdy. And I'm Ruben Lerner. And this week, we are going to talk about nails, rusty nails. And uh, let's let uh, Philip tell the story that will uh, lead us into the discussion. Sounds good. I sent an email to my list yesterday, and um, for some reason, Jonathan Stark's on my list, and he was like, we should make this the topic of the next show. I think that's a <laughs> yeah. good idea. So, um, I don't know, maybe I'll just read the email. I'll try not to. Uh, it's actually pretty interesting. Don't skip over this part, and Now, folks. <laughs> a dramatic reading. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> um Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to talk to you really briefly about Freelance Remote Conf. I'm putting on a conference for people who want to go freelance or who are freelance, and bringing in some of the experts from The Freelancer Show to talk to you about how to find clients, how to collect money, how to build your business, how to specialize, and much, much more. So if you're thinking about going freelance, or you're already freelance and want to hear from the experts on how to go, become, or grow your freelancing business, then by all means, come check us out at FreelanceRemoteConf.com. That's exactly right. (laughs) Um, uh, Okay, here we go. When I lived at the Oregon coast, my wife proved to me beyond a shadow of a doubt that she's a patient, determined badass. So we paid an out-of-work, unlicensed contractor to build a deck for us. The deck was 60 feet long, 10 feet deep. And it was made from this uh, hardwood called Ipe, three-inch wide planks of Ipe and, of course, pressure-treated wood for the support structure. Contractor was a really nice guy, but he took some shortcuts without asking us. Um, I may have mentioned this guy before at some point. Uh, He could never show up for like a full day of work, despite his best intentions. Um, one, One day, the reason was because his brother had shot himself in the leg with his own gun twice. Anyway, <laughs> uh, this guy took some shortcuts. One of them was he used the cheapest Phillips head screws that he could find instead of what probably even at the time I knew he should have used, which are these ceramic coated, uh, what are called star drive screws. They have a more robust way of um, engaging with the drill so that you don't like strip the screw while you're screwing it in, etc. And this Ipe wood is very hard, so you really do need a like a robust screw to drill through it. It's not like drilling into a, or screwing a a screw into like a piece of pine or other softwood. So we may have discussed this with him and he was like, ah, you know, this comes out of my cost for the project that I'm doing this flat rate. So I really needed to, you know, kind of get a, get a bargain on these screws. We just wanted the deck built. We were like, okay, I guess, you know, you're the expert here. And we went along with it. Six months later, at least half of those screws that he had used were beginning to rust. And in retrospect, I was not surprised at all. (laughs) But this was now the situation we were in. My wife ended up going out and um, unscrewing each screw one at a time and replacing it with better screws that we'd bought at the hardware store. 
you know, those <laughs> ceramic-coated star drive screws, the ones that we knew were the right ones for the job, and the ones we, that we knew would be able to withstand eight months a year of rain for the rest of the life of the deck. So I did some math. I think that's 2,400 screws. I'm not going to run through the numbers here, but um, I think that's 2,400 screws that my wife unscrewed individually one at a time and replaced with new, better screws. She went out like for an hour a day, unscrewed the rusty old screws, replaced them with new ones until it was done. And I don't remember, it took a lot of days of her going out and doing that. So this makes me think about uh, custom software projects and really not just custom software projects, but, you know, any kind of freelance work. Um, here's a couple things that, that I'm kind of posing as observations slash questions. We just wanted the deck built. We didn't really, we didn't really want to have to get in, involved with how it was built. Like we didn't want to have to select between multiple different types of screws so we kind of turned a blind eye to some choices that at the time we had a sneaking suspicion were not the best choices, but we're the people who had to live with the results of those choices. So any shortcuts this guy took, we had to live with it. How could that have gone better? Like we weren't really incentivized to care deeply about the materials yet bad choices about the materials were going to affect us. How could that have gone better? Um, I mean, should the contractor have gotten our sign-off on the screws? Second observation, we had spoken, actually, to a far more expensive contractor before we cheaped out and went with this guy. Um, and, like, when that other contractor came out, he said stuff like, we will use stainless steel screws, which I think are pretty much the most expensive screws you can possibly buy. <laughs> and that's because they'll never rest, and they're... You know, they're the sort of the ultimate material that you could use when it comes to screws for a deck. So we knew from having spoken with this guy, who was going to be twice as much money at least, that there was a there was a sort of premium approach and then there was a compromise approach. So how could this other guy have persuaded us to spend money that we literally didn't have twice as much to build this deck uh, without like scaring us or making it seem like a scare tactic. What could that guy have done differently that would have resulted in us choosing him and been more satisfied customers in the end, despite paying more money? So that was basically the email. I, I kind of um, uh, rewrote it there live at the end to just make it more conversational. So what do you guys think um, about that whole thing? I had an immediate reaction. Oh, sorry. My immediate reaction was uh, about the first guy. And because it's a question that I get from people who are people who I'm coaching that are or talking to on my list about switching over to a fixed fixed price approach where you calculate the price based on the value to the client and not your costs. You know, what what about you know, what's to stop me from, you know, cheaping out? What's to stop me from cutting corners? And the answer is that you offer a guarantee of some kind. And so it's funny because there are, there are about five different things I do in my business that all work together to make the whole thing work. And it's hard to just talk about one in a vacuum without talking about all of them. But if, if you imagine, 
uh, a situation where, you know, I quote a, a client, okay, it's going to be $50,000 for this mobile web redesign or responsive redesign of your website. And if you've heard me talk about this before, you know, I don't agree to deadlines because I'm not in control of how fast anybody does anything. So it would set the wrong expectation if I set a deadline. And I think sign off is a bad thing for projects because projects don't just launch one day and they're perfect. It just doesn't happen like that. So I just say, look, you know, you can pay me hundred percent upfront or if they balk, I'll say pay me 50% now and 50% in 60 days or some other date that we pick, not the launch date, not the sign off date. Cause I don't like sign off for this reason. Uh, but get the payments out of the way and then the, the work that it takes to complete the job, which really is the, the, how do I satisfy the customer? At what point is the customer satisfied that everything's done? It does this sort of weird long tail thing at the end of a project because I guarantee the work. I say, I'm not going to disappear. You're not going to have to pay me more if there's some defect that I should have known about or, you know, I should have prepared for. Uh, or whatever. And if with those two things in place, a guarantee, a satisfaction guarantee, you know, that's doesn't, it's kind of, it's hard to describe without, you know, the sign off, having sign off kind of invalidates the satisfaction guarantee for me. So, so giving a satisfaction guarantee and providing a fixed price for the work, it puts all of it, it aligns the incentives between my client and myself in that the faster we finish, the better it is for both of us, but the faster we finish, it, it still has to be high quality. Like we can't cut corners on the quality because then it's just going to go on forever and my costs are going to go back up, if you see what I mean. So in the case of the, the screw guy with the brother, uh, the hop along, the, <laughs> the, issue is that he wasn't going to stand behind the work. If he, if he had agreed to stand behind his work, he never would have used those screws because it would have been a false economy. He would, he would have to come back and unscrew 2,400 screws and replace them with the ones he should have used in the first place. So it would automatically have probably increased his price, but it would have automatically solved that problem. Anyway, so that was, I, I didn't really have a, I have a couple of ideas about your second question, Philip, but I don't, but no s real strong ones. You know, how to, how could the more expensive guy have, um, sort of convinced you to come up with the money or perhaps hold off on the project until you had the money without using scare tactics. Uh, it's, that's a little bit of a fine line, but anyway, the, the I think the, the problem with the first guy is that he did, didn't guarantee his work, which I think is a, mistake for software developers right so so i mean like i just want to push back on that a little bit jonathan because i see I, I mean i know you've mentioned this in your list because I, I get both your lists um i know you've mentioned this a bit before but i i saw this story and yes i definitely think that you know the, the guy was being cheap and the sort of no one was incentivized in this story to use high quality and yet part of me when i read this thinks wow, this is why doing fixed price bids is such a problem. Because like, if I'm doing it fixed price, then I have every incentive in the world to cut corners, unless, as you say, I guarantee the work. If I guarantee the work, I'm terrified that people will just keep coming back to me ad infinitum, asking me for changes and improvements and on and on. And I'll just, like, basically what seems like a really high rate 
uh, at the beginning will dwindle down to a, a, a zero rate. So, so how do I how do I balance that? There are a couple of things. One one is not to work with people who you think are jerks, basically. <laughs> so work with people who you who respect you and you respect back, and that will never happen. So it means you have to be picky about who you work with. And the way to do that is to have lots of leads, which Philip can talk about all day long. So if you can be really picky about who you work with because you're not desperate for the money, you're not desperate for the leads, then this problem solves itself. Uh, okay, so that's one thing. Another thing is that if you're dealing with people you know, fairly high up in the organization, they're not going to they're going to be busy too, and they're not going to be really interested in bugging you endlessly about this thing and that thing. So if you control access to who can report defects to you, and it, you know, you're not going to be, the customer service team isn't going to be emailing you directly. You have everything go through the highest level contact that you've been dealing with, and they act as a throttle for all these little things. So that kind of puts a throttle on it. And I, uh, what's the last thing? The last thing is setting expectations. So you just be like, you know, new features are not included with this. And um, obviously, I mean, if you're talking to someone who, you know, at the beginning of the project, you're talking to someone who, you know, you communicate well, you have mutual respect. Obviously, new features are not going to be included in this endless project. Uh, if there's some defect, obviously, I'm going to fix that because it shouldn't be there. I'm an expert at this and I stand behind my work. Uh, but if there is anything that you would like to add that was that was not that doesn't contribute to the goal that we originally agreed to, then we'll make a list of those things and we can set up another project once you're satisfied with the current project. And what that does is if there if a bunch of things do crop up for a V2 or a, a second project, you can you, you can kind of I kind of use it to buffer in between the projects. So, I'll, they'll say, okay, we're, we're really excited to start this second project. I'm like, well, we just launched this one. Let's let the paint dry for a little while and make sure everything's fine and working before we start building on top of it. Because it, it takes a while to be sure that there are no, you know, strange problems. You know, let some clients get in there, let the database fill up a little bit, whatever the things are, run the quarterly reports and then say, okay, we're sure that this is, this is stable. We're, we're reaching our goals. We're very happy with the success of this. Now let's put together a proposal for the additional features that, you know, whatever the CMO or the VP of sales decided would be great ideas for the website. So I guess those are the three things that I use together to keep the scope creep from, from becoming endless. Jonathan, have you seen types of projects that are completely unsuitable to, or, or, or just would be impossible to kind of constrain in the way that you're talking about? Uh, more so clients. There are types of clients that are okay. possible to constrain in that way. So people who are just looking for a pair of hands, this would never work. Uh, you need to you need to be talking to a decision maker who is is laser focused on business outcomes of the work, and not the the minutia of what color something should be or how big the logo should be or that sort of stuff. So if you if you're dealing with someone on a peer level who is a business person. And you can have a wide conversation with them and get the underlying reasons for doing the project and how, you know, what's the outcome that we're trying to achieve here, how we're going to measure the progress toward that goal while we're working on it. So we know we're going in the right direction. 
uh, give yourself that context within which you can say yes or no to scope creep along the way, then it's, 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 uh, it's just kind of obvious what's in scope, what's out of scope and whether or not it's going to be a good fit. If instead you're talking to someone who's like, I just want you to get started. What's your hourly rate? Uh, they don't want to answer questions about why they're, why they're interested in hiring you to do the work. Those are all red flags that they don't even know why they want the work done. They just think their website's ugly and someone told them that they should have it redone and they heard that you do that. So if they don't have some kind of metric that they're trying to improve, it's definitely dangerous. So you're really saying if you have a solid client vetting process, then it's likely not to be an issue. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I, I know a few months ago, I can't remember exactly when it was, we did a show talking about sort of how to stop clients from interfering too much in what we're doing and how we're doing it. Um, and I, I, I feel like in this story of Phillips, like he should have interfered more. He should have come out and said, you know, um, maybe you should be using these other nails and that would have solved the problem to some degree. Although I guess part of the story was he did do that and the guy said, sorry, you pay me fixed price. So yeah, that's what you get. But how, how, I mean, I don't know how I would feel. In fact, I guess I do know how I would feel if someone were to do that to me, right? Someone were to come to me and say, I think you should be using a different technique um, that will cost you more or take you more time or whatever the equivalent would be in software terms, but that's better for me in the long run. Well, that comes down to you too, though, right, Ruben? Like, I think as consultants, our choice should always be what is in the best interest of my clients. So while it would increase my cost to use the right screws, that is how you build it and have it in the best interest of my clients. Because, Philip, are you going to hire this dude again? <laughs> no. And, no. Okay. But <laughs> if he had you know, done it right and showed up and got it done on time, and all, you would hire him again, even though it may have cost him a little bit more, or you would recommend him to your friends? Well, yeah. I mean, um, uh, me and my wife and I have a long history of like trying to find uh, that great value combination of someone who does really good work and who... Um, it charges a great rate. Like we found a guy like that in Portland when we lived in Portland, this was at the Oregon coast. So we didn't have access to uh, Miguel was his name. He was amazing. He was like an artist. He uh, just made all the right judgment calls every time that he had to make a judgment call and just charged a really uh, attractive rate. So, and you know, we still recommend him <laughs> to people who we know who live in Portland. So yeah, I mean, it's not like I wanted to burn this guy or had any animosity towards him. I, I totally would have been happy to recommend him had I been satisfied. Yeah, and so for him starting to the standpoint, like even his excuse, well, you did it fixed rate and so this is what you get, to be like, but that's not my problem that you quoted fixed rate, right? Maybe it's your problem that you didn't read through and didn't cite that, okay, he's not using stainless steel or the ceramic coated screws, but I mean, it's not... That sounds like a problem. It's just not your problem as the end user, or it shouldn't be your problem anyway. You know, there's actually a few more details that relate to what we're talking about. To me, I mean, to me, that that idea of judgment calls is is huge. I think this kind of gets to my second question. The the more expensive guy, I, I'm guessing, but in retrospect, I, I think I can retro guess that he would have made better judgment calls than the the cheap guy we hired. As an example, 
So we had purchased the, um, let's see, I think we purchased the materials for this project. That was another thing. That was another sort of, uh, I guess you could say consequence of using the cheap guy is like he didn't want to purchase the materials. He gave us a bill of materials and we went out and bought the materials. And he was of the mind that we wouldn't, would not want to have to go buy more materials, especially this ePay, which was getting increasingly expensive for some reason. It was like out of season or something or becoming short in supply. And we'd started the project using ePay, <clears throat> ran out of ePay at some point because we hadn't bought enough and needed to buy some more. And so he was building the, the, the stairs on the deck, which descended from the deck down to the ground and ran out of ePay. And so what he did was brought in some gravel and uh, made this like two foot high pile of gravel for the stairs to land on, rather than <laughs> saying to us, sorry, we, we ran out of ePay. You know, I underestimated again. Could you go get some more? He, he felt like he'd gone wow. back to the well one, one time too many. And so we, we walked out to, you know, we came home from work or whatever, looked and, and saw that he'd done this. We were like, WTF, dude. <laughs> this, and his explanation was, oh, I thought you could just fill in the rest of the yard with gravel to match that. or with <laughs> dirt, Not with gravel, but with dirt. So... <laughs> <laughs> he, he really said that. So my point is he all along, he was making judgment calls that were not a, not in our best interest or certainly didn't match the kind of judgment calls we would have made. But also I realized that in your marketing that you've got to be able to demonstrate to clients that you will make better judgment calls. And, and it's not just that the more expensive person wanted to use more expensive screws that wasn't why they costed twice as much. A, they were going to pass the cost of those more expensive screws right on to us and, and feel good about it because they were doing something that in the end would benefit us because they knew that cheap screws are going to last about six months when it's constantly raining, as it does at the Oregon coast. So I thought that was an interesting sort of extra detail about... Um, well, there's that, and then also, Jonathan... Like, even if this guy had offered a guarantee, and I'm not um, contradicting at all what you said, but the experience of working with him was so frustrating that we would not have wanted to bring him back because we were like, okay, what if we buy the better screws and ask him to install them? And our thinking was, he'll just find another way to screw it up. <laughs> well, the interest, your interests weren't aligned is the right. problem. Okay. What, what do you mean by that? Well, he, he it wasn't it wasn't in his best interest to give you a premium piece of work so it, perhaps i mean there's there's the other question which is maybe he wasn't capable of doing it the screws of course are one thing but maybe he was just incompetent so there's that but i just think your in, your it, clearly your interests were not aligned he was not looking out for your best interests and mm -hmm. and he it could be on purpose. It could be because he's cutting corners or it could be because he didn't have a good conversation with you up front to find out what your interests were. And there are probably way too many assumptions about what level of quality you were willing to accept. Mm -hmm. So he was probably assuming, oh, well, you know, I'm giving these guys a great rate. I know I'm half the price of the nearest competitors. So obviously they're expecting this to be kind of a hack job mm -hmm. and then delivered a hack job.
So perhaps some expectation setting, a conversation around the assumptions up front would have solved a lot of problems and, and perhaps educated you guys to the point where this cheaper guy made the more expensive guy look like a more attractive option. Mm-hmm. Look, we, we just in the last year have done uh, three renovation projects in our house. Um, first of all, like we have this sort of overhang, I guess kind of like the equivalent of a deck in Israel. Um, and we were looking for someone to do it. Our old one was falling apart. And my wife spoke to friends of ours and they said, oh, we just, we have this guy. He just worked on a house. He's amazing. He does a great job. So we brought him in and the guy gave a fixed price bid and he said, this is what you'll pay me up front. And this is what you'll pay me after. And we went with him. Um, and, and, uh, at some point near the beginning, my wife said, listen, I'm not interested in going to stores with you and picking out wood for this thing. You have to go. He said, fine. He comes back with several samples of wood. Like just again and again, he showed that he was willing to go the extra mile. And he said, I will not compromise on quality. I will do everything the right way. Um, that's the way I am. And so we did this first project with him. We were overwhelmed and happy. And yes, it was more expensive than it would have been with someone else. But we were still happy when we went back to them to do them. Uh, we built a studio for my wife outside. And then we were like even happier. And at some point we were worried about the water leaking in, that we hadn't taken some into account. At his expense, he did all sorts of things. He said, I should have taken that into account. And then we just like last week, uh, we had to take out a bathtub that was rusting, replaced it with a shower. Um, and, and he knew, he gave us a fixed price bid, but he knew coming in that we were going to make mistakes and we were going to ask for this and this and this and all sorts of additional things. And then what started as a 10,000 check, like $2,500 project, ended up being a $5,000 project, even though it was fixed price, because we kept asking him for more because we were so incredibly satisfied with his quality. And we will gladly recommend him to anyone. Um, so he's not the cheapest, but he is such a joy to work with because he's predictable, he's honest, he's straightforward. And uh, I think in many ways, he's taught me so many lessons about what it's like to be a professional, um, even though he would say, well, you know, I'm just a, you know, just a workman. But no, he's, he's really, really good. He's demonstrating all these things that you guys are talking about. Are you looking to expand your skills in mobile development? Have an idea for the next Angry Birds app? Then you need to check out iOS Remote Conf, produced by the same team that brings you your favorite devchat.tv podcasts like Ruby Rogues and iFreeze. Join us for two days of jam-packed fun and learning streamed to you live May 17th and 18th. Go check it out at iosremotecomp.com. Um, even though he would say, well, you know, I'm just a, you know, just a workman. But no, he's, he's really, really good. And he's demonstrating all these things that you guys are talking about. So I'm curious if, did you know before the first time you hired him that it would go so well? Was there something in his behavior that showed you that you were dealing with this level of professional? Uh, no. I mean, we, we had heard good things from our friends. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, he showed up exactly on time, which is a rarity in Israel among anyone. Uh, and then he said to me, he said, he said to us, constantly said, I do excellent work. I show up on time. I don't mess around. We kept saying, oh, my God, this guy is so full of himself. And you know what? <laughs> he is full of himself. But he's really good at what he does. He, he's yeah, telling the truth. Not, not bragging so, if it's true. Right. And, and I think also when he came by to talk to us about the like the roof and the wood and he brought the different samples of wood. So it wasn't at the first meeting necessarily, but by that second meeting when he said, OK, we're going to measure the angles here and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And we negotiate with him about like how many pillars there were going to be. It was clear this guy really, really knew his stuff and he cared about getting it right. And he was going to work with us to get it right. Um, and it, it was just like 
And, and as they started to work, it became increasingly clear, wow, we are just so lucky because so many people get massively overcharged and they don't know what's going to happen. And it lasts forever. He also kept saying, this will end on such and such a day. And, you know, I, we always joke about or talk about how software projects are like construction projects where they, they never stay within budget or on time. And like to the day, he was 100% right. Now, granted, that's because he brought, brought in a small army. Like there were four or five people working in our house. But he said, that's what I do, right? I bring in as many people as necessary to get it done in that time. That's impressive. I think there's a lot of parallels there. Like the thing that I notice is this guy, uh, actually, I'm curious, when did, when did, when did you give him the first payment? Was it after he'd impressed you with his, uh, design and diagnostic abilities or was it before? Uh, I think it was before. Okay. I think we had basically been convinced to go with him through our friends like, we had a lot of talk at home, like, wow, this is going to be a lot of money. Are we going to really pay for it? And then they say, do we pay for it out of the business or personally? Um, but um, so I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I think we gave the first payment before the whole meeting that impressed us. But, but like, we at that point, we were just totally sold, right? It was clear this guy was amazing. Right. I bet that did wonders for the uh, potential buyer's remorse, you know, that feeling like because with, with in my experience with this uh, cheap contractor, I, I wouldn't say it was full level buyer's remorse right away, but I immediately started having doubts. Like, you know, immediately, you know, he was like driving two hours away to get some deal on screws from some building supply place. And I'm like, why don't you just get them at the local place? Oh, they're cheaper there. They've got better better, uh, prices on stuff. So, um, I, I'm impressed with, in your retelling of the story, how this, I, I, here's what I'm saying. <laughs> when you diagnose somebody's problem, I think that's your first chance to win a lot of trust. Maybe it's not your absolute first chance, but that's, that's your first kind of face-to-face -face chance. I think to develop a lot of trust with someone is when they when For your sure. diagnosis really impresses them with how accurate it is. And it seems like this this guy did that. Yeah, and look yeah, what happens he, he, if you don't have the trust. You turn into a client from hell. You start second-guessing everything they're doing. You start mm -hmm. saying, well, no, you should be buying your screws here instead of there. You start trying to do their job for them because you're nervous that they are, going, are not going to achieve your desired outcome because you guys never talked about your desired outcome. I yeah, agree. You, you talked about that professional, right? You don't yeah. trust them. You talked about a deliverable. You didn't talk about the desired outcome. I right, want this yeah. deck. I want it to be this big. And, right. and there last, are a million assumptions. Right. Needs the last 20 years, yada, yada. Yeah, you're exactly right, Jonathan. So so how, how do we how do we then, like, I mean, I, I think some of these points are obvious, but I'll ask them anyway. How do we then structure our business? How do we structure our relationships with our clients so that they will see us as professionals, so that they'll trust us? Um, and, and so that when it becomes, you know, comes time for us to execute and ask for payment that they will gladly do it, seeing as an investment in what they're doing rather than, Oh God, I've got to pay this guy. Like he was, a, he was a pain when working on it. Now I've got to pay him afterwards as well, or beforehand in your case, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think Curtis touched on it. It, it has to do with. I mean, client intake almost sounds more clinical than I view it, but it's, it's like, I'm just really picky about who I work with and I can, and it's not probably helpful to anyone listening, what I'm about to say next, but it's total gut instinct. And 
I can just tell like, you know, Aaron that was on uh, previous show, I think it was a previous show. She was talking about how, you know, some red flags is that red flags, uh, not that a client's bad, but that it's going to be a bad fit for you is if you can't understand their emails or they, they're just not clear, you need lots of clarification when you ask like what you think is a simple question and they miss the point completely. Like when you're sort of talking past each other in whatever channel you decide to use in the sales process, it's, it's not a good sign. And when I can tell, like when I think back to particular, my, my most successful, most long-term clients, we instantly clicked. We both write the same way, you know, that me and whoever the contact is, we write the same way. We get the same jokes. We, all of that stuff just clicks. A lot of times they're also a musician. I mean, it's, it's like there's someone that I could probably hang out with or be friends with and under different circumstances or end up being friends with through the work. Uh, and it's really as simple as that for me. I, I, I don't really overthink it too much, but if people wanted to get a little bit more, if people wanted to go back to the previous episode, I think Aaron goes into a little bit more deep, Aaron Flynn on the, on the last or last guest went into some more specific detail about how you could perhaps figure that out in a little bit more tactical way than just like, Oh, this seems like a nice guy. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned it's got its instinct, but then you mentioned two or three things that I exactly follow, right? Like, did we laugh at the same stuff? Mm -hmm. right could i see like going down with my kids and hanging out with them and their kids too at the park those are not yeah, that's a good one right those are things and i'm thinking of a recent client where we'd have like an hour like check-in and we'd spend probably 30 minutes like laughing about the ridiculous things one of our children did because it was just absolutely hilarious and ridiculous yep and same exact we, thing here. that's what we like that's what let me know this is an awesome client one of my favorite clients in the last 18 months and we spent most of our time not even talking about the project when we had our check-ins which was fine I had, we had 60 minutes and Right. And she knew that as well. She knew every time she had a problem on a Friday, she's like, we'll talk on Tuesday. And I know we'll talk about the kids and we'll laugh and I'll feel great at the end of the conversation and the problems will be dealt with. Yep. That's great. I mean, that's not necessarily gut though, right? That's at the end of, I actually have myself a question. Did I laugh with the client? Is one of the questions I ask at the end of every uh, initial sales call. Did I laugh with them? And if the that's, answer is yes, then they're, you know, it's a point towards being a good client. If the answer is they totally missed any of my dry humor jokes, then it's a, you know, not necessarily an absolute no, but it's a, you know, point against it a little bit, right? Yeah, I love that. That's a great one. So should we perhaps turn to Philip's second question about how the more expensive professional person could have perhaps uh, changed the game and either yeah. worked Philip into holding off on the project until he could do it properly or figuring out a way to perhaps do a smaller, you know, like to make it work financially. I think we should. <clears throat> yeah. I'll, re I'll reiterate so the like, question for the benefit of okay. readers. I mean, you kind of did, Jonathan, but I'll just add on to that. So we spoke to the more expensive contractor. We felt like that's the person we probably would have hired, but we didn't have the budget. This was the sort of internal conversation in our mind at that point in the project, right? We just don't have the budget for this. So how could that more expensive contractor have helped us ultimately make a better decision for us? I'm assuming a little bit, but let's just, for the sake of discussion, assume that the project would have been like a, one of those dream projects with them. They would have showed up. They would have worked a full freaking day every time instead of having some excuse why they couldn't make, make it. 
So they, it just would have been low stress for us, and the end product would have been like the highest quality uh, thing. So how could they have? I mean, how could they have influenced us to make that happen? Is really the question. If it were me in the software scenario, I would try and you know if it, if they said, you know, I give them a quote. And they're like, they just, they're just like, look, we really want to work with you, but we, we literally do not have the money for this. That, and, and, and I believe them, you know, I believe that they're not just uh, price shoppers or, or poker players trying to haggle. Then I would say, all right, well, let's talk budget. You know, how, what can we do? Let's lay the groundwork for this bigger thing in phases. So perhaps there was a way that your guy, the, the, what, what should we call the, the high quality guy? Uh, let's call let's call him Jeff because I had a really amazing guy working my house named Jeff. Great. So so let's say Jeff said to you, "Look, you guys, I know you want this big deck, but you know you got some realities of your budget, and I just don't see how you're going to get a quality product for the amount of money that you've got to spend. And anybody who promises you different is going to be cutting corners. So, you know that means so so be sure you ask them." these five questions that the guy that Jeff will know nobody else will be able to answer to your satisfaction. So he would be, you know, imagine if, if he acted like he was not going to do the job, but it was just your friend and was consulting you about it. Like, Oh, I you know, I, I don't have time to do this job for you, Philip, but, uh, I'll, I'll help you vet other possible people that are going to build the deck for you. Here are the five things you should ask them. So, you know, Philip says, okay, that's, you know, so that's building trust with Jeff, uh, perhaps scoping down the project and doing, uh, doing it in stages where you could add on more later. We had more, more funds available, uh, or, you know, trying to, trying to think of like non-scare tactics. Uh, I mean, the other thing is to talk you out of doing it give you some, or perhaps some kind of payment terms that soften the blow. Yeah. I think. The number one thing I would do if I were Jeff in this situ situation is just make, just try to make sure that you, Philip, felt like I had your back, whether you hired me or not. It's like, I don't, you know, you seem like a nice guy. I don't want you to end up with a crappy deck that falls down after a year and you're starting from scratch anyway. I'd rather build you a smaller deck for your budget than have you go get this giant 60 foot long thing that's just going to fall apart. So, you know. Whether or not you hire me, I know you're looking at other people. Make sure you ask them these questions, and and if they give you the wrong answer, here's what are the consequences of that. Because then Jeff is in that scenario. Jeff is demonstrating a massive amount of expertise and professionalism. Yeah, yeah. I've got two thoughts on that. Um, of course, I've been kind of immersed in this Jim Camp book on negotiation, so I, I think uh, Jeff could have been asking questions like how involved do you want to be in the, you know, day to day of this project? Um, how long does this deck need to last, uh, last, you know, how, how much life do you want to get out of this, this piece of infrastructure you're, you're paying us to build? Like those kind of questions I think would have helped me imagine in a, maybe in a more realistic way, like what I wanted. Now, of course, I, I felt and was in, in reality constrained by budget. So 
I agree. I think maybe the phased approach or something like that might have been, uh, you know, might have been a, a legitimate approach. I um, <laughs> our cat, one of our cats, uh, we, we got this awesome sort of cat cocoon that was made out of felt. It's very cool looking, and one of our cats uh, <laughs> likes to eat it, and kind of nibbles the, f- the felt and then eats it. And she'd been doing this on the sly without us really noticing. And then, then her appetite kind of started um, going away. And, and then we started putting two and, together, two and two together. And we were like, oh, my gosh, how much of this felt has she eaten while we weren't looking? And, you know, is that like obstructing her digestive tract? So we um, got the vet to come by and do an X-ray. And, um, and the vet showed us the x-ray. And then I had this realization <laughs> about, it just made me think about expertise. So the vet's got the x-ray up on the, you know, the, the light panel where they illuminate the x-ray and is, ta- is talking us through it. And I realized that it's very weird because I, ca- I can't read an x-ray. I don't think anybody who's not had some real medical training can properly interpret an x-ray. So the vet may have well have been saying, blah, 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 you know, like the Charlie Brown uh, teachers in, in terms of my comprehension of what they were saying. And then I started thinking, are they just really just doing this to establish expertise or so that we don't second guess the, what they're going to say next, which is their recommendations based on what they're seeing in the x-ray? Um, it really made me think about selling custom software services because there's so much complexity and you really have to, at every stage, think about whether it's relevant to your client or not. So I'm not saying there's any answer there. This was an interesting uh, experience that made me think about that. That place where you're, you're speaking with a client and, and trying to reassure them that you have the expertise that's needed and you're going to make those thousands of judgment calls the mm-hmm. right way most of the time. It's, it's kind of tricky stuff. One thing that you said there about the, if he, if Jeff had asked you how long you want the deck to last is something that I ask all of my clients when I'm doing a development project with them. And it's a funny question because it immediately raises, it it punctures the assumption that it'll last forever or it'll last long enough to satisfy me. But if nobody says how long, long enough is, then there's a major assumption there and assumptions are resentments waiting to happen as my report says. So the, in the software world, my question is usually like, you know, is this thing that we're working on, is this the foundation, the, the platform for the next 10 years of your business? Is this a pivotal moment in your history or are we just slapping together a prototype of this thing so that you can go get funding or something like that? And it, it's a massive difference in the thousands of decisions I would make that I'm not going to bother the client with while I'm doing the work, but there'll be thousands of decisions I will make that are very small, but will all add up to something that, that, uh, will make something more appropriate to their desired longevity of the code base. I love this question. I, 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 I don't think I had ever heard you mention before and certainly I didn't remember it, but it is such a great question to ask because. I mean, right, puts everything in perspective there. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great value question too. I mean, if there if if this is the other thing it tells you is how high risk the project is for them. 
if it's just a prototype that they're mashing together to make some decision, you know, show to the board to make some decisions about their next, I don't know, mobile product. That's a very different value proposition than, than ostensibly building the same interface, but you know, in a way where it is just going to be one building on a city block that they're envisioning this, you know, that they're going to be filling in over time. So, you know, do we, do we need to lay plumbing under the streets? Do we need streets in the first place? You know, are we, are we starting? That's the analogy I tend to use with them. It's like, are we building a shed or are we building a city block? And you can't build like a city block all at once. It's, you know, that's just doesn't really work anymore, you know, waterfall type development. So it's like, okay, what we're going to do is lay down tracks in front of us as we're driving the train. So everything that we build will be infrastructure for all of the buildings that we know will be here eventually, but it's going to, it'll take more work for us to get that infrastructure set up at first, but it will support this bigger ecosystem that you're picturing versus, you know, let's throw together some spaghetti code to convince the board that we need to actually put together a real budget. So it's a, a huge difference. And, you know, naturally the higher value one is the city block one. So people who are trying to build a platform for the future for their business is a, a much more uh, interesting customer, in my opinion. Yeah, one one thing that occurs to me is um, for that more expense for Jeff, the more expensive contractor to tell me uh, basically to make claims that I'm, I'm going to make better judgment calls, you know, you think of a deck as a simple thing that just holds you up four feet in the air off the ground while you walk around on it. But really it's this, you know, complex thing. And like for Jeff to tell me that I think would not have been as, as effective as for him to write, ask the right questions. Like, um, you know, how are you going to use this deck? How many, uh, you know, social gatherings a year do you think you'll have on it? Like, really just ask actually a lot of questions to kind of help me take this blank spot in my mind, which was me with a, a deck in my future and, and paint it in, in like full resolution. So I could really understand it, you know, in, in a, like in a sales letter, that's, that's part of the f- usual structure of a sales yeah, letter. Increasing to the perceived value. But, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't affect your, <sighs> doesn't affect your real right because it's very hard to assign it it does increase your perceived value which means that you'll be getting more value out of it which means that if you did have the budget to spend the money for jeff then your satisfaction would actually be higher i know yeah you're right uh it's very hard to assign value to something that is uh, kind of an abstract idea like you know deck (laughs) 60 foot long deck uh, I mean, I could picture it sort of, but still, I think there, I think that was maybe the opportunity, the main opportunity that Jeff missed was, um, was to really, really help me paint that picture. And, you know, I'm trying to think about this from Jeff's perspective. Jeff, I think was busy and really didn't need the work. You know what I mean? Like, I think he had plenty of work, which I would expect because I, I'm assuming, I think for good reason that he does really good work. And so he was busy charging twice as much as this other guy. So I I didn't feel like he needed to pursue the project. I don't know if that figured into, I'm not really kind of trying to throw Jeff under the bus for not convincing me to do this, but uh, 
I, it's just an interesting thought experiment. Like, what could he have done to get right. that? Yeah, I mean, get that project been, if he wanted it. In all likelihood, you were throwing off red flags for Jeff. Like, oh, great, no money. Okay. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like when a client comes to one of us and is like, right. "Look, yeah, uh, exactly." I haven't got a lot of money for this, but I know you're the best. So, <laughs> I'll give you equity. <laughs> right, because you know, because. Um, you know, five miles down the road from us was, uh, were a couple of, uh, you know, high end vacation communities where Jeff can get, you know, work from people who have multi-million dollar houses who need a new deck and are going to have a completely different approach to it. And I guess, you know, for the, for the freelancers out there, that's good to bear in mind that it, the, the, getting away from bad clients towards good clients may not be as long of a journey as you fear that it's going to be. I'm really, <laughs> no, I, no, I think that's true. The, <laughs> the, the hardest, I, I honestly believe the hardest part of it is the freelancer changing their mindset about how they're going to interact with clients and, you know, be the professional say no to bad work or I, I hate throwing away around the word bad. Like it's like, like some client is just bad no matter who works with them. I don't believe that's true. I think, I think that there's probably a good fit for everyone. And if you start to, you know, if you've got the leads coming in, that's the thing. It's like, if you've got the leads coming in or you've got a financial cushion of some kind and you can really, you know, listen to your gut or take Curtis's advice and, you know, do we click, do we laugh? during the sales meeting and be a little bit pickier about who you work with, your world is going to transform very quickly. But the tricky part is getting out of the, the downward cycle of like, Oh man, I don't know how I'm going to pay for my new deck. Uh, I need to take on whatever work comes my way. That's it. It's like, that is the, the, the vicious cycle. You got to break the chain somehow. I'm trying to think how we can uh, try to tie this up on a, an up note <laughs> other than the break the chain. <laughs> break the cycle of abuse. Yeah, um, I mean. We should hit on asking more questions, though, right? I think that's I had a whole series a while ago on questioning methods on my site and like how to go between, you know, the five whys or all those other questioning methods there are probing questions to get into it. So if you're going to want to find out, like as a, I guess on the other side of this, if you're going to want to find out on Jeff's side, all that stuff, you need to dig in with all those questions every time with your prospects so that you know that they're like a good fit and that you're actually working on the, um, working on what's most important to them. Right. It definitely is. I mean, quite, Questions and the interactions are so important because they not only inform you and make you allow you to give better service, but it, like I mean, I don't mean to make this sound bad, but like politically, it's very smart too, because it it gives them the sense you care about them, you care about them and what they're doing and how you're going to work with them, and that just changes the whole game, right? They they want to work with someone who cares about their product. They don't want to work with someone who's like, oh yeah, whatever. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the bottom line is talk and care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> TimberTax.co provides web-based tax services for freelancers and consultants. 
A web-based experience from end to end, including direct interaction with certified professionals, Timber is able to help you stay compliant and plan for the future. Taxes are often the biggest expense faced by freelancers and consultants. Are you investing in planning and understanding how to minimize your tax and manage your cash flow? Taxes don't have to be intimidating or scary. With our client-first approach and accessibility, you never have to wonder where your return is or when you'll get your refund. Book a free consultation today or check to see if your tax question is on our FAQ at TimberTax.co. <laughs> All right. Any other comments about this before we uh, move into picks? All I know is Philip's got to gotta pick the cordless drill. <laughs> <laughs> Curtis. Oh, sorry. sorry. Curtis, give us some picks. Okay, I'm going to pick uh, Manage WP, which I use to manage all of my WordPress sites and the few I host for my parents or family. And then the one client that I keep their site updated because it makes my life so much easier. And I just sign into a single dashboard and deal with it all easily. Okay. Jonathan, you got anything? Uh, Yeah, I am starting to get... This is total unrelated to anything we've been talking about, but I am slowly but surely turning into like a watch guy. And uh, I have bought, I think, three different watches online and sent them back because it's, it's a, it turns out it's a pretty tough thing to buy online. Uh, I buy tons of things online, but for some reason when I get a watch, I'm like, you know, it's like slightly too big. It's like, yeah, it's a little bit. You know, it's like all these little teeny little intricacies that, uh, I find myself getting pickier and pickier about. Uh, but I finally got one that I really like and have been wearing nonstop, even has supplanted my Apple Watch, which is uh, which was my previous favorite. And this one is called the, it's a Seiko dive watch that uh, is called the SRP777. And if people are into dive type watches this is a really it's amazing bang for the buck a good friend of mine who uh, actually a friend of all of ours friend of the show kurt elster recommended it to me and uh super happy with it so you know people are looking for a nice new watch you could do a lot worse than the seiko 777 very retro too people of a certain age will (laughs) that's it Philip, what you got? Well, uh, let me pick that drill <laughs> that has uh, screwed and unscrewed uh, literally thousands of um, screws into hardwood, which um, is uh, a real test of a drill uh, in rain, <laughs> rain, snow, and everything else. Um, it's this uh, Hitachi 18-volt lithium-ion compact pro driver drill. I'll drop a link into the show notes. You know, I, I, I have developed a weird bond with this drill part. I mean, I didn't do the work of swapping out those deck screws. My wife did it. Um, I don't know why I didn't help. Someone on my list was like, why weren't, why didn't you help her? (laughs) And I'm like, well, there must've been a good reason, but I I honestly can't remember why. Anyway, um, I, I didn't do the work, but I've developed a bond with this tool because it is one tough drill that, uh, I bought refurbished and this thing is just kept on trucking. So, uh, I guess that's my pick for this week is, uh, 
in, in the specific sense, that Hitachi drill, and in the larger sense, uh, good tools that you can rely on. Very good. By the way, when, when would you be drilling in the rain? Yeah, like, I mean, why do you care about how why? a drill you could... Um, I mean, are you really that addicted? Um, because Curtis, if you, you live in like Portland one? or Seattle or something and you decide you're not going to use your power tools in the rain, that means you're not working for eight months of the year. So it has to work in the drain. Yeah. In Ontario, okay. you'd worry about the snow. So. Yep, that's it. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> um, so I've got a pick for this week as well. Um, the book Badass, Making Users Awesome. I cannot remember who recommended this book to me, but it was recommended to me, I think, by a few people over the last month or two. I finally said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll take a look at it. And I'm not convinced that the book does what it claims, which is tell you how to make great products and services. Um, I am convinced that it is fantastic for people interested in training <laughs> because it describes how people make decisions and how they remember and how they learn and how you want to sort of make them feel. Um, so I, I will believe the people who say that it's great for products and services. Um, but I, I just kept reading through this book and saying, wow, this is really brilliant. Um, I also was recommended not to buy the ebook version, uh, the Kindle version, but rather to buy the actual paper version, uh, which I did. And I'm not hundred percent convinced that the format really made that much of a difference, but, uh, given that the Kindle version is more expensive than the paperback version, you might as well just, you know, kill some trees and, uh, buy that one instead. But uh, very, very highly recommended. A quick read and an interesting one. And uh, definitely one of those books that you, you think about for a long time. All right. And with that, we come to a conclusion conclusion of this uh, episode of The Freelancer Show. Curtis, Jonathan, Philip, thanks so much. And uh, thanks to you all for listening. And we will be back next week. Adios. Ciao. See you later. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.